Well, welcome to Student Affairs Live. Hello, and my name is Keith Edwards. Um, this is Student Affairs Live, the online learning community for student affairs educators. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his, and I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach who helps to works to help individuals, organizations, and communities realize their fullest potential. You can find about more about me at keithedwards.com. Today's live broadcast, we're debunking the myth of job fit and higher education in student affairs. This episode of Student Affairs Live is a part of the Higher Ed Live Network. All of our episodes offer you direct access to the best and brightest minds in education like we have with us here today. Be part of our live broadcast by sharing your knowledge. Participate in today's discussion by tweeting us using the hashtag Higher Ed Live. Thanks to Brian Hercliffe Proffer for tweeting at Higher Ed Live and monitoring today's back channel. If you have questions for our panelists, please tweet hashtag Higher Ed Live and we'll do our best to incorporate them into today's discussion. We broadcast Higher Ed Live approximately twice each month on Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Today's live broadcast is empowered by Platform Q Education's Conduit Online Engagement Platform. Learn how to integrate continuous online engagement into your marketing and enrollment plans using Conduit. Visit platformqedu.com. All of our episodes are recorded. They're free and easy to access in the video archives at higheredlive.com or take Higher Ed Live with you on the go by subscribing to our podcast. Higher Ed Live is produced by M. Stoner, a digital first agency committed to tailored solutions that drive real results. You know what you stand for. You feel it in your heart. Now what? Tune in to the free webinar, Mark, Making Your Mark, Unforgettable Branding, co-hosted by M. Stoner, a digital agency focused on higher education marketing and communications, and Zeno, a strategic branding and marketing firm for educational organizations. On Wednesday, June 26th at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 Pacific, you'll learn how to transform your message platform into compelling and captivating creative and how to make your website an integral part of your branding. We're tweeting out a link with information and registration right now. Now, on to today's show. Today, we are debunking the myth of job fit with the co-editors of their new book, Debunking the Myth of Job Fit. Let's have um, each of our four panelists uh, chime in. If you could tell us a little bit about uh, who you are, your name, your pronouns, your role, and just a bit about yourselves, that would be great. I think we're going to start with Gabby. Yes. Um, good afternoon, everyone. As Keith said, my name is Gabby Porcaro. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And I currently serve as the Assistant Director for Queer and Trans Student Initiatives at Roger Williams University. So we're a smaller private university, um, liberal arts based in Bristol, Rhode Island, directly on the Narragansett Bay. We inhabit indigenous land. Um, and so that's a little bit about myself and I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Hello everyone, my name is Vu Tran. I use he, him, and his pronouns. I am currently at Michigan State University as an Assistant Director of Residence Education. Um, I have also uh, previously served as the Chair for the for ACPA's Commission for Social Justice Education. Uh, and then fun fact about myself, I am a huge soccer fan. I hope that folks are watching the Women's World Cup right now because it is lots of drama. Hey everyone, uh, my name is Elliot DeVore and I use he, him, his pronouns. I'm currently a fourth year PhD student in the Counseling Psychology um, Program at the University of uh, Go Vols. Um, I also serve currently as a therapist at the Student Counseling Center in the role of a graduate assistant. Um, proud alumni of Iowa State uh, and have worked in residence life. Hi everyone, my name is Brian Reese. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I'm the Associate Director of Residential Life at Colgate University, which is a small uh, residential liberal arts institution in central New York. I'm also a doctoral student in the Curriculum Instruction in the Science of Learning program at the University at Buffalo, and um, began uh, as the chair of the Commission for Social Justice Education a few months ago. Well, excellent. I'm really thankful that all four of you were able to be here. Now, you're co-editors of the book, Debunking, Debunking the Myth of Job Fit in Higher Education and Student Affairs. Um, Brian, maybe you could tell us about how this all got started. Where did it emerge from? How did this project come to be? Um, and I believe you have, a, in a comic book-oriented fashion, an origin story for us. 
Yeah, I'd love to, to talk about that because to me, this is one of the, I think the most important parts about this book and the project. Uh, this really was born out of a collaboration and really started as a conversation through the Commission for Social Justice Education. Um, I believe it was in 2014, uh, which I think was Indianapolis. Uh, and at the convention, I actually happened not to be there at that particular convention, but I heard that there was a really great conversation amongst the members of the commission about um, some of the experiences that the members were having with feeling like they didn't fit in at work and their experiences with the job search and feeling like they had to sort of hide parts of themselves. Um, and when I learned about this conversation, I, I also felt a, a, a huge connection to that story. Um, and. Uh, the chair of the commission at the time, I believe, was um, was Stephanie Bondi, um, and she started to sort of organize this uh, conversation uh, with folks who wanted to um, continue talking about job fit with one another. And so I joined in on that conversation, and uh, there were lots of other people there. I believe uh, Vu and Elliot uh, were part of that as well, and um, some folks like Reggie Blockett, um, Danielle Need from the Coalition for Sexual and Gender Identities, Stephanie and Dre Doming um, were all some really great voices at that at that table. Um, and over time, it's that we started talking about whether or not this would make sense as a book. Um, and uh, none of us had really done a book project before, had ever really developed uh, a book a book length project. Um, and so for us, it was it felt a little bit aspirational. Um, but over time, we continued the conversations, and a, and a core group of people really got together um, to, to really continue talking about this. Um, Gabby actually joined in as an intern um, with the Commission for Social Justice Education, uh, which was a newer program at the time, and uh, became so involved in the project that we ended up uh, developing this, what I thought was a really stellar team of co-editors. Um, over time, we ended up... Uh, uh, putting out a call for chapters is kind of your typical book process. Um, and we asked people, what do they think about job fit? We received, I think, close to 50 submissions wow. uh, for that for that call for chapters. Um, so it was a really tough, it was a really tough um, conversation that we had as a group about uh, we can only have so many chapters in a book. Um, and I think that though that what we ended up with is a is a really solid uh, a really solid book. Um, but but it, to me that what that illustrates is that there are so many other perspectives about job fit out there um, that there just isn't room for print um, on. But that that we that we also need to be paying attention to. Right, and it tells me that people. This is something people are wrestling with, struggling with from so many different mm -hmm. angles for so many different reasons. That's a that's a huge response for for a call for chapters from a book. Um, others want to share about how this all got started? Oh, Vu, I think you're on mute. Yeah, we talked about this off air. I should unmute myself. <laughs> um, yeah, I would add on to the origin story by sharing that while the four of us uh, had not had prior experience with creating a book project, um, the commission did have experience in publication and so um, we a part of our um, our strength in scholarship came from a lot of folks who were involved in our first book project as a commission which was the art of effective facilitation uh, and so I know that for us we also used a, we modeled a lot of our process uh, in developing the book project from uh, by drawing upon uh, the the infinite wisdom and scholarship from uh, the folks involved with that book project. Mm -hmm. Great. So tell us a little bit about uh, who the contributors are and how this is organized for, for folks who don't have it in their hands. Yeah. So we, um, in the, as Brian was talking about the, the difficult selection process of all of the different chapters, uh, we felt like it was really important to convey um, as much breadth as possible in terms of the varying perspectives on uh, critical perspectives on job fit. And so uh, the chapters that we selected um, all really contribute additional critical layers uh, in looking about job fit. And so anyone can pick up a book and go to a, a chapter that really uh, speaks to them at that moment in time. And so uh, maybe if there is, um, there are, someone is 
experiencing uh, some challenges with job fit and uh, really needs or could benefit from more of a legal perspective um, or legal concepts around uh, talking about job fit, you know, you can turn to the chapter on legal perspectives on job fit. Uh, or uh, if someone um, could really use more perspectives on navigating job fit as a trans person, you know, you can go to that chapter. So it's not necessarily a book that people would need to read front to back. Um, you can read it at your own pace. And uh, it really does, in some ways, it, it kind of acts as a reader. Um, we, For those of you who have your hand on the book and have already started, we do recommend at the minimum reading the first chapter because it provides a really great overview uh, of the general uh, general field of um, of job fit scholarship. Uh, it includes some a lot of work that we we did on uh, literature search and literature review um, from folks in other many various fields outside of higher education who have done this work. Um, and so, uh, would really recommend at least reading the first chapter and then going to the specific chapter uh, in which uh, you may find compelling. Uh, we also found it, uh, we, we really aim to strike a balance between making it accessible and not using a lot of jargon and language and and uh, big words to uh, to uh, talk about job fit, um, while also making sure that uh, it's engaging for folks who have been really engaged uh, interested in this topic for a long time. And so, um, we hope that there's there's something for everybody in this book. Uh, finally, I'll say that it includes a lot of different voices. Uh, and so we have folks who are scholars in the field. We have folks who are uh, early career professionals. We have mid-level folks. Uh, it, it really does provide a, a wide range of perspectives on job fit. Great, and I think we, we have a Brene Brown quote that can kind of help people get an idea about what you mean by fit and where you're critiquing fit, right? Yeah, I'll speak to that a little bit. Um, and uh, one of the, I think one of the the challenging but exciting parts about this book for us is that we we didn't we chose not to define fit, um, and 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 we also were guided by a definition of fit at the same time. And so mm. I'll, I'll share this quote, um, which is uh, from Brene Brown in *The Gifts of Imperfection*. But she so she, she says, uh, "Fitting in is about assessing a situation and becoming who you need to be to be accepted." Um, belonging, on the other hand, doesn't require us to change who we are. It requires us to be who we are. Um, and for us, this was sort of a guiding a guiding way of thinking about fit, but it wasn't necessarily a definition. And, and we found it really important to allow the contributing authors to define fit in a way that made sense for them based on their own experiences and backgrounds, um, the research that they have done, uh, their, their work as supervisors or their experiences as supervisees. Um, as people hiring, as people searching for jobs. Uh, and um, so for us, this sort of general sense of, of, of uh, fit as, as a way that we conform who we are to others' expectations and striving for belonging was something that really guided our work in, in writing the first chapter, but in, in seeking submissions for the rest of the book. Uh, but, but at the same time, it was really important to us to, al to allow the space within the book for many different ways of conceptualizing fit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. I'm a big Brene Brown fan, and we got that uh, tweeted out. Thanks to, to Brian for tweeting that out from the Hired Love account. Uh, but I really appreciate that because there, there is something about where can I, and I've always used the language fit, and I appreciate you challenging that. Where, where can I maybe find belonging? Where maybe am I not going to find belonging? And what organizations and what people and, and and then for organizations, how do we create space where where exactly as that quote says, people don't have to become something else; they get to fully be themselves, um, which which is always a challenge. So, yeah. so and thanks I, to, I, oh, I was just going to add too uh, one one little uh, piece of fun information is that we we really struggled. We kind of made a challenge to ourselves to try not to use the word fit during our selection process. And, and as much as we couldn't use the word fit, we would try not to. It's very difficult. Um, mm -hmm. And so I would actually challenge, challenge the people listening to, to try to have a conversation where you're making decisions without using the word fit. And uh, it's really hard because we use fit when we don't really know what else to say. 
Yeah. And that gets us into trouble because that's where yeah. our, our unconscious and implicit biases just come flooding in. Right. Mm-hmm. And we, and it, you also can't hold me accountable. If I just say well, they're not going to fit, you can't hold me accountable to what maybe is behind that. And, and I might not even be aware of what's behind that. Well, thank you so much to, to Brian and Vu for kind of setting us up and giving us the history of this. I'd love to bring Elliot and Gabby into this conversation. Elliot, let's begin to, with you. Uh, what, you know, you all spent five years uh, from these initial conversations at, at ECPA 2014 in Indianapolis um, to talking with other people in this project emerging and, and looking at 50-some responses and, and pulling this together and reading the author's work. Um, I'd love to hear uh, what you have learned uh, about this topic and, and, and some of the takeaways that, that you've gained through the past five years of this project. Yeah, I think one of the big takeaways for me um, in some my area of interest in research and work is just around whiteness in general. Um, I know a couple of us have talked about this chapter, but how that's helped me understand my own queerness and my own gender and the way I show up in the workplace. Um, now that I show up as a therapist has given me a lot of pause to uh, assess how that influences my experience when I search for a job and interview for graduate programs. Um, but I think one of the big takeaways for me now is um, as a counseling psychologist now, um, which is close relationship with student affairs folks, is vocational psychology is the big hub of our field and uh, I think a great contribution. I think student affairs in my training has helped me to better understand how we define fit with that person environment. Um, I remember taking our class and, and really challenging the way we categorize people and even the way we've organized our data, um, the way it doesn't highlight the, the nuance in lived experience. Um, so it's really helped me to challenge a lot of my colleagues and, and the work that we do with students um, doing vocational assessments, um, the way we even structure that and the way we think about how that, that shows up has been, has been really important for me. Uh, and I'm really thankful for the authors giving me a, a nuanced perspective to take in as a researcher now who's trying to create scholarship that helps people. Um, so I, it's given me pause to think more critically. So I'm appreciative of that, of that. Great. Gabby, how about you? What, what were some of your big lessons through this process? Um, I mean, so much in like contributing to what's already been said and then so much outside of that. So, um, I know Elliot was just talking about and mentioned in particular, one of our chapters explores, um, how whiteness works. Um, last summer I had the opportunity to attend the social justice training Institute. So I think after coming off of getting to read that chapter, cause the book was completed last summer. So it already spent quite a bit of time with that chapter. I just gained this new relationship to that chapter through that experience as well, particularly with how us white folks um, use the idea of perfectionism, like what it means to present in a certain manner, how it means to speak in a certain manner, our attire, um, things that maybe we talk about sometimes, but the way that we are always holding people to this idealistic and fake level of perfectionism. That's just a code for whiteness. Um, that's been something that I've been reflecting on so much um, and is one of, one of my largest takeaways and has spawned um, work that I'm doing on campus here with a few of my colleagues in having conversations surrounding our whiteness, right? So unpacking it, trying to understand it, holding each other accountable. A group of us are rereading White Fragility by um, Robin D'Angelo now this summer as a result of that, just really trying to make sure um, that we're doing better because I also I'm a part of our intercultural center. We had two job searches last year. I was pushing back against colleagues quite a bit as fit was showing up and um, trying to say, well, what what personality types do we want? All of that coded language. Again, we discuss this throughout the book. Our authors do a fantastic job about interrogating this and providing you resources with how to push against this, whether you are on the hiring side or on the job seeker side. Um, but all of those ways we try to create this ideal of perfect candidate um, is just kind of code for whiteness. Um, and I would say capital W whiteness, like all of those other privileged identities. Um, and then the other biggest piece that's really been a key takeaway for me and one that's been a lot of fun, a chapter that you already referenced um, by doctors, David Wynn and Dr. Lawanda Ward, um, looking into the legal perspectives, I think they provide some excellent recommendations at the end of their chapter about 
what you as job seeker can be asking when you're on the interview um, to ensure that you are putting yourself in an institution that is at least having tough conversations about what social identity even is, how it's showing up in the workplace, and what their commitment is to social justice. Um, I think a key takeaway from that chapter and working with those authors for me was you don't have to be afraid um, to ask questions about what an institution's commitment is. And I, you're, what you're going to find more likely than not is that institutions aren't doing their job. Right, we're not investing in critical social justice thought the way we should be. Um, and it might catch them off guard in an interview, but wouldn't you rather know that information up front before maybe you're given an offer and accept an offer? Yeah, I think that that's great. And I really appreciate you sharing um, your perspective from both sides of this as, as both uh, being a candidate and what to, questions to ask and what things to seek, and then also sharing the challenges uh, um, from the hiring side about what is our process looking like? Where are we slipping? Where are we falling into this? How do I hold myself accountable? How do I hold other members of the team accountable? Because um, my experience is we all, we all want to be good at this, and then we don't do very well at this, right? The desire um, to do that. And then, but then people sometimes just don't even know what to do. So um, I wonder if there are other suggestions you have for folks uh, about some tangibles. We should give Kyle Ashley a shout out. We've got two mentions of his chapter um, and, and Kyle's chapter on, on whiteness. Um, what other uh, tips and suggestions would you have for folks from either the candidate or the hiring side? Any, any of you? I would encourage you to look at like how you've structured the interview day. Um, I think the amount of time that you allocate to certain things really demonstrates what you're prioritizing uh, as a workplace culture and how are the identities represented in your organization contributing to the the value placed in time allocation, uh, where those events are. Um, what does that say about you and what doesn't it say about you? Um, I think some of those things go unquestioned. Um, so even just looking at those sorts of things has, has been helpful for me as we uh, interview PhD students that fly across the country for our program. I've been asking some of those questions and, you know, people, they would say, oh, we've just always met this way. And, you know, and if that's the answer, then that's not a good one. Um, so that comes to mind. Yeah, I appreciate that from everything from what's in the posting to how we do it to the handouts to the PDFs to the questions we ask to how we schedule the interview day. We're always commuting things communicating things. And I, I think making sure that we're communicating accurately um, about the organization that we are rather than the organization we wish we would be someday. It's good to have aspirations, but let, let's be honest with candidates about where things are, are not quite where we want to be. I think I'll also add, I think uh, one of the challenges for a, a, a topic like this and, and to write a book about this topic is it goes back a little bit to what Gabby was talking about in terms of perfectionism. Um, and I think that uh, there's so much potential for us as uh, search committees or hiring managers to want to do it perfectly. Um, but the problem is that we're, we are operating within systems that are not perfect. And we're operating within systems um, that do privilege certain people over others. Um, and so what I really appreciated about the way that the, the authors in, in, this, in this book, the way that they brought this topic to bear is through a, a really layered um, sense of awareness of those systems and structured and, and how perfection isn't possible. So I'm thinking about the, the chapter on, no, I can't meet you for an $8 coffee. Um, and, th and thinking about how, uh, how so many of our practices are based in um, sort of classist notions of the ways in which we interact with one another. So uh, one of the ways that people advance is by getting invited out to $8 coffees at Starbucks um, that they may not necessarily be able to afford. Um, and I, re I remember myself coming from uh, a, a lower socioeconomic background and, and being in a, my first position out of uh, out of grad school, not paying very well at all, and sort of this tension between needing to, uh, feeling like I needed to say yes to people inviting me out to lunch or inviting me out to coffee, but not knowing how to navigate, not being able to afford to do that. Um, and so and this isn't to say that we can't invite people out to lunch or we can't invite them out to coffee, and that's not what, that's not what the authors are saying in that book. It's to really think about how we go about doing that and the ways in which what we do it, are caught up in those systems. 
Um, and so like, is it that I think about at my institution, if I want to take someone out for lunch or take them out for coffee, it's easy for me, but, but I'm at a privileged institution. It's easy for me to say, oh, I'll just put that on the budget code because what we're talking about is work-related. Uh, but that's not the case at other institutions. And so really thinking through how do we help people advance or to think through their career tra trajectories in ways that aren't caught up in, in or perpetuating these systems. Great. Well, I'd love to hear how you have put this wisdom gathered from these contributing authors into practice and how it has changed some, some of what you're doing. Um, Vu, why don't we lead off with you? How have you put this into practice? You're, uh, you're at a large uh, housing and residence life operation there at Michigan State. My guess is you do some, some hiring and, um, and hiring processes. Yeah, yeah, we do lots of hiring. <laughs> And um, I mean, for for to be to be honest, I am still pretty new here at Michigan State, and so I'm still continuing to learn about the many systems and processes that we have here. Uh, but I, th what I think what I can speak to is that um, one of the things I've learned throughout the course of my life that where this book project really helped me put words to is that there really is no such thing as a completely bias-free job search process. Um, I think a lot of the, uh, the mechanisms that we put into place to convince ourselves that something is unbiased still are laden with biases. So, you know, we come up with these rubrics, we come up with um, these uh, different systems to, to quote unquote, un ensure a bias-free process um, are, are really, it's really unrealistic, right? To kind of mm -hmm. completely isolate and eliminate the, um, the, the implicit biases, as you were saying earlier, Keith, that really exists uh, within our within ourselves individually as well as within work environments. And so I think um, what I've come to learn is that it's really best as uh, to the extent that we can to put our our individual level and also environmental biases out on the table uh, to address those proactively, right? So if we uh, if we know that we're currently in an environment, as an example, to uh, let's say that values um, uh, a certain type of dress, right, and a certain type of appearance, um, you know, I know that there's one there's uh, one chapter in the book that uh, where the authors actually a couple of authors reference dress and dress code as an example of fitting to, fitting into an organization. You know, if we know that that's a bias uh, and something that we value as an organization, that uh, that we can have those direct and honest conversations when it comes down to the selection of who we offer that job to. Uh, um, I know that even within this uh, really large organization, uh, there's also been opportunities for me to engage in more critical conversations about challenging certain processes that we have and um, challenging in, in ways that uh, where we um, we kind of push back uh, where when we think we're doing we're putting together a process that feels like uh, it may be helpful for a candidate, um, where the, whereas it may potentially be more harmful, doing more harm than good. And so a, another example would be uh, processes where we take candidates out to dinner, right? Um, some some uh, employers will choose to um, take their candidates to dinner either the night of an interview or the night before. And, uh, you know, if we if we think about the type of tone that set, sets or the message that it sends, um, it could potentially um, do good, yes. Uh, and it could also, um, it, it sends certain messages about uh, the values of the organization who we represent. So, um, and there's a lot of opportunity to read into some of those things as an employee, a potential employee. And so, so I think this, those are some of the ways in which I've kind of enacted that as an, uh, from the employer's perspective. Uh, real briefly, I'd like to add that from a, a job seeker perspective, uh, one of the things that I've really gained from this book project is the importance of really developing your a, a sense of agency 
and um, being able to be reflective and identify where it is that I hold um, decision-making opportunities. And so, um, because really the honest truth is that within job search processes, that there's a clear power imbalance, right? Where employers are the ones who have power uh, and prospective candidates are the ones who who are the uh, targets, uh, who are in a targeted position. And so um, to the extent that I can as a job seeker, you know, I, I try as much as possible to to identify the areas where I do have agency and to be able to act upon that. And so um, that's one thing that I would encourage for folks to, to really consider is, especially if you're currently in a job search process right now, think about where it is that you have authority over and control over your own decisions and your own life and don't always bend to the whim of the employer, right? Like you have agency, you have authority um, and, uh, and you need to be able to act upon that. Right. I appreciate that. The, the big takeaways for me there is that the, to, to have a, a fully perfect process is, is never going to be possible when you have systems and structures and human beings who are, who are flawed. So how do we, how do we hold that and give ourselves some grace while also having high aspirations and not just give up and say, well, it's going to be a mess anyway. So let's just be a mess, but how do we hold ourselves? And, and I guess my takeaway is let's just be as transparent as possible about what works, what doesn't work, where things are. And then you're giving the example about dinner to be transparent about what we're trying to achieve. And is that what's working for you or, or do we need to do something different? And I love the nod to agency. How about others? Other ways that you're putting this into practice? So I would say some of the ways that I've been putting this into practice and actually like Vu, when you were speaking, I was reminded one of the first times we presented on the book together, I won't like say any names. We were at a, we were at a conference, we were debriefing together over lunch. You had attended a different session that was talking about dress and like two of the biggest takeaways for you from that session where they were like, you were feeling a little bit frustrated in how these folks were talking about what dress job seekers should be showing up for interviews at, or even once you have the job. And I looked down and I was wearing the two things that you, like these speakers had named frustrated them. It was like, never wear sandals and never wear ankle pants. And I was like, oops. <laughs> um, so right, all of the, and I'm saying that now in this kind of funny way, because it's like, how do ankle pants and sandals have any type of um, representation of who somebody is as a human being, as an intellect, as somebody that could contribute positively to your institution. It has no say, but that's all that silly muck that is in a lot of our brains about what it means to be a good worker. So I think that, like, honestly, dress is one of the biggest ways I still show up and try to challenge. This is also coming from a super privileged place of me being white and me being cisgender. Um, and me already being at the current institution I'm at for about two years now, right? Um, but I do try to dress in a manner that I think is actually appropriate for the role that I have instead of this ideal of what it means to be a worker in the United States, because I think those are two very different things. Um, so I think trying to exercise that agency that Boo is talking about is one of the biggest things that even as a current employee and being on the employer side, I try to exercise and challenge the systems that are in place. Um, but I think another huge way that I've put this into practice is um, while reflecting on my own individual biases, trying to develop a healthy sense of distrust in some of these things that I've coded mm -hmm. as um, truths, if that makes sense. So in our field of student affairs, we are obsessed with personality assessments. We love StrengthsFinder and the MBTI and like you name it, we're doing it. They hold all these values of like what it means to build a great cohesive team. Um, I also love podcasts. And so I listen to a lot of really fun podcasts. And one of the most recent ones I listened to kind of like smacked down the MBTI as like this completely like not factual thing. And who knows if that's actually true? I'm not sure. Um, but we put a lot of value into these things and try to use them to justify why somebody would or would not fit. Um, and I uh, am guilty of putting that trust in those things. And I think it's another way that I've allowed myself to develop biases against um, so many folks. Um, so I'm trying to get a healthy sense of distrust in things that I once was taught to not question. Yeah, great. I, I, I appreciate that. I, I, I've always found it funny that um, acting professional student affairs people have to go out and buy outfits to interview in. 
Like if you were only going to wear that to interview in, why are we wearing suits that we would never wear on campus to interview in? Like maybe we should wear kind of what we would wear when we're on campus when we're not at um, the the annual cattle calls. Um, one thing that I would add, um, so chapter five, the no, I can't meet you for an $8 coffee. Um, I really took that to heart and I, I actually sent that to my program when we were doing my interview process because I think uh, I didn't, well, when I started my program, five people in my cohort um, in my PhD program and three of the five, me not included, uh, have a parent with a PhD and have a lot of financial resources to support them uh, on their journey through a six year long PhD process to become a counseling psychologist. And so when people come and they ask, you know, about the financial aspects, um, one of the things the book chapter talks about is navigational capital. And it's been interesting seeing my um, colleagues who come from family of means. Um, I grew up in a senior household on government assistance. Uh, and I realized like, wow, I have a lot of knowledge that I can offer graduate students who are living at the economic margins. We qualify for food assistance um, through food stamps. I've helped to challenge our program to provide extra information about how to navigate the process of a graduate student by here's where you can find affordable housing. Here's how to apply for food stamps and to not shame about that. Um, it really helped me to engage some of my own internalized classism and realize like, hey, this is a strength that I've had that I had to learn to navigate this you know, at a young age and to be very transparent about that with our search processes. And a lot of students who come to our program or ended up going elsewhere have personally thanked me about being so open, say, hey, like we're on food stamps and it stinks and that's the reality, but here's how you can cobble together resources to attain this degree that you want to obtain, but it's not impossible. Um, so I'm really grateful for that chapter, but that's something that I've specifically been trying to do in my work as a result of the book. Thanks, Elliot. And let's get a, a shout out to those authors, Sanja Argua and uh, Becky Martinez, for their, their contribution to that that we've referenced a couple of times. Brian, anyways, you're putting this into your day-to-day uh, -day practice? Um, yeah, maybe uh, I'll be a little bit more abstract, which this group will know is my <laughs> my tendency but um your superpower I, yeah it's my superpower um but i think uh for me i i really strongly believe in the power of language um and the power uh, the power that's in language and so for me i think something that that this book provided me with um through this five-year process uh and that that we hope that it provides people with through through reading the the finished product is language to talk about this. Um, and I, I think what's what's sort of dangerous in a sense about job fit uh, is how elusive it is and how quickly it, it disappears after we say the word. Um, so we talk about fit and then we move on and we don't really investigate or talk about what we mean by it. Um, and so this for me has provided me with a really strong set of, of different varying perspectives on how to talk about fit. Um, and so, the way that I have really put it into practice is by talking about it um, and making this a regular part of the conversation that I'm having with my colleagues. Um, I'm in a position of, of supervising. I've been on um, six search committees in the two years I've been at this institution. Um, hashtag small liberal arts colleges. Uh, <laughs> and so I think, uh, like for me, uh, what I go back to is thinking about uh, sort of early on in the project, we had originally thought that we were going to have a series of what we called scholarly contributions and then personal testimonies. Um, and we were, I, I don't know, hopefully everybody remembers this, but we uh, were originally going to have actually two different calls for content, one call for chapters, one call for testimonies. Um, and what we found as we, as we read through these uh, amazing chapters was that testimonies are part of scholarship. Uh, mm. That the narratives that we're that we're that we're telling our lived experiences, those are examples of scholarship. We build our expertise by living our lives, um, and so w what I love about this book and what it's provided me with is as a way to frame my own narrative in an empowering way, um, so that I feel like like we were saying like I have agency in 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 places where I never felt like I had agency before, um, and that's. That that's like as a member of a search committee, uh, where where I didn't really think it was my place to to step up and say something um, over a, a committee chair, for example. Uh, 
but when in fact it is my place as a member of that committee to say something or ask a question like what did you mean by uh like i don't what did you mean when you said fit in this instance um and we say fit in lots of different ways and the fit is the word that we chose for the book but uh we we say that in lots of different ways and it's our responsibility as members of those of those communities when we have built up enough capital to do that to, to step in and and say something um and what I found challenging before working on this project was not necessarily having the language to talk about it in, the, in these contexts. And I'm so grateful for the, the work of, of our authors for helping provide us as editors with that language and hopefully our, our readers as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I love what you're saying about um, not separating out the scholarly from the personal narrative because that's all of that. And you're giving real depth to mm -hmm. Brene Brown saying, uh, you know, stories are just data with a soul. Um, and so you really, there's a lot of, a lot of soul in this book. Um, I'd love to hear from you all about, obviously we don't want to use fit in a hegemonic way where we're making people become something they're not. And there are organizations where individuals will be better able to thrive than others. There are deal breakers people have based on their identities and their values. Um, and so I'm, I've been wrestling that as I've been thinking about this. I've always used language of fit. I'm totally on board with your critique. I'm ready to give it up. But I'm wondering what to talk about as I often find myself uh, talking with people who are candidates in multiple processes. Where's a place, and, and I guess the language I'm using now, and I'd love for you to help me clean this up, is um, where can I find alignment? Or where's a place where there's good potential for me to find belonging? Right, and so I'd love to hear. Um, I know you all have been in conversations and in conversations. Um, how would you encourage uh, both candidates and organizations who are looking um, to bring people in? Because we don't want to set people up to be miserable, yep. um, to not be able to be successful. That's not good for them. It's not good for the organization that then spends time training them, and then in six months is doing another search. So, how do we do this alignment or finding places where belonging is possible? without getting into the damaging, making people fit thing. Maybe, um, can, we, can we start with Vu on this? You look, you look eager. Yeah, I am. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm reflecting on one of the pieces of um, consideration that we were invited to, uh, to really ponder over and challenge ourselves with as editors uh, in our book development process. Uh, one of the pieces of feedback we got was that job fit can be a good thing. You know, we, in our, our quest to be critical of job fit and, and look at job fit through this critical lens, uh, it led, led us, down, us down lots of really valuable paths of unearthing past uh, historical in, inequities and uh, marginalization of different communities. It also maybe pushed us too far where we um, we also we for, we lost perspective on all the positive benefits of looking uh, of why job fit exists and the motivations for why um, individuals and employers and organizations may want to and feel some need to in integrate this alignment or whatever it is that we want to call it. Right? Um, I know that uh, you know com Brian made a comment earlier about have, being so sensitive to the concept of job fit where we we went out of our way to try to find other words <laughs> to describe uh, fit or alignment without using the word job fit. But I think there, there still is value in talking and it, talking about job fit and using that as a way of framing um, alignment, whether that may be alignment of values or environment or person to person. Um, I think for me, it comes back to fit is a, being a tool, right? The word mm -hmm. itself and the, the concept it's, itself is a, is a tool and tools, any tool can be used for its appropriate purpose or it could be misused and uh, can create harm for folks. And so mm -hmm. so I think, I think what I would advocate for is a more mindful and conscious approach to mm -hmm. using fit. Um, I think that we, we, I hope that one of the things that this book project pushes people to do is to to use it as an uncontested term and to assume that we all know what we're talking about when we're talking about this person being a great fit in our organization. Yeah, yeah, I love that, uh, of uh, interrogating it, of being conscious of it, 
uh, Daniel Ostick on, on Twitter saying that um, he always wants people to, if they're going to use the fit, explore what that means. So mm -hmm. when we're saying fit, what, what are we meaning? And, and I think that's really hard because I might be unconscious, not aware, not just not wanting to say it out loud, but I may not have an idea about what that is. Gabby, what suggestions would you have? So, I, Vu, everything that you said about fit being a tool, I could not echo um, louder. And I hope that that resonated with folks the same way it's resonating with me. And then um, in addition to that, I think regardless of whether you are on the hiring, hiring manager side, on the job seeker side, or whether this is just your normal day-to-day -day at work, um, if you are in a position where you've got maybe let's say the dominant identity of what is either being critiqued or talk about, or you just have a lot of like, you have a lot of privileged identities. Um, if you're feeling uncomfortable by like change that's happening by conversation that's occurring, um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad um, because progress might be happening. That could be, that might be allowing folks that have not been able to experience a sense of belonging in the workplace um, prior to that, it might mean that that progress is actually finally taking shape. I think something that um, has evolved with me around job fit is a sense of for folks to be able to experience alignment and belonging in a positive sense, it inherently means that some of us are going to need to get really uncomfortable, and that's not a bad thing. Um, any type of growth comes with discomfort, um, so leaning into that discomfort is so incredibly important. Mm -hmm. I love that. And, and one of our um, folks on Twitter, uh, Ali Triggs, perhaps, um, not sure what your your full name is, say, uh, I love the phrasing of this. There's also still value in positive experiences that bloom from gathering a, a sense of belonging. And I, I think that's when people say there's value in fit, that's what they're talking about, right? Or, or intending to talking about or, or aspiring to talk about. Uh, and I love um Gabby's nudge that if it feels uncomfortable in your dominance, that's probably great. And how do you be in that, which is harder, harder to do. Um, Elliot, how about you? What uh, what suggestions are you? You've already talked about some of the ways you're doing this in terms of um, candidates coming in for, for doctoral programs and other things. What what ways would you suggest that folks navigate some of this? Yeah, I really love, um, as someone who does therapy now, I really love what Kathy said about growth comes from discomfort. I always tell my therapy clients that. Um, so I, I definitely encourage that. But something that comes to mind too is like if, and it was a social justice educator because um, I do intergroup dialogue on my campus is that we're asking our students to lean into that discomfort to grapple with how their privilege has prevented them from getting. I think we are... We have to do that ourselves too in this process, right? It's like, how can we, on one hand, ask our students to do this in these educational environments and yet not uh, take it back and self-reflect in the same way? I think that's great. Um, if you love someone and you connect with them on an interview, um, never assume that that person won't accept the job um, because others have come and gone. Um, we can't just assume that they won't a person won't be happy in the in the job or won't be happy in this location simply based upon our fear that they may leave because there's not a lot of folks that share their identity there. Um, I think if you can't even imagine a liberatory space where you can change the, the environment, you're preventing that person from making the decision for themselves. And there's a lot of power in that quick thought of, oh, well, they probably won't accept the offer because X. Um, and the question that I would ask us to do is, why do you personally feel that way? And really, what are the emotions that come up when he and the authors are asking you to challenge that question? Like, where is that coming from? Um, I think that that mindful uh, awareness of that emotional reaction is really important. Um, maybe that sounds too much <laughs> there, but I think those things are important because those emotions play into how we're making the decision. Um, so I think that's what I'd ask you to do to engage in some self-reflection uh, as the process happens. Yeah. Well, and you're, you're pointing to the, those emotions are often an indicator of deeper things going on. Like I might, I might have just a, a gut level response because this person looks a lot like the person who bullied me in high school. 
And that's not fair to them. Or this person, the way they're describing this, uses language similar to someone who um, was really great to me and I was an amazing mentor. And so I elevate them, right? And so how do we pay attention to those kind of emotions and then unpack what's what we may be underneath them and influencing some of that? How about you, Brian? We'll return to uh, before we turn to some final words of wisdom from from all four of you. Brian, do you have uh, uh, other suggestions or tips you find yourself uh, sharing on these six search committees you've been on, uh, <laughs> or to candidates navigating these different processes? Yeah, well, and Elliot, what you said just really resonated with me and my experience um, on some really great search committees this year, uh, where we had some challenging conversations around th th those very questions of like, will they will will they be happy here? I mean, we're in the middle of nowhere in New York. Uh, it's a very rural, very white area. We're a very privileged institution, and so there's sort of a profile. Um, but we but we've had some really great conversations about that, um, and we've actually built into our um, hiring process to talk about that with search committees. Um, bef before they go making those assumptions, um, which I think is really, really positive. Um, so I think that's, that's sort of one suggestion is to really think about the kind of training you're providing to people making hiring decisions. Um, and that's brought up in many different chapters. Um, and also, uh, I think, I think giving, like, just be open and honest with people, especially when you're, I think on both ends, but it's easier to be honest when you're in power. So the hiring manager or search committee, mm -hmm. Um, being forthright about, like, we tell people when they're coming here what they're, what they're walking into, even though it's kind of obvious when you step onto our campus. Um, we want them to know what it is that we're working on, what, what we're uh, not necessarily working on yet, but would like to, and the challenges that people face. Um, but then we also, behind the scenes, connect, connect people or, or try to ask them if they want to be connected to people with identities that are similar to theirs to talk about what it's like in a way that's not going to get back to the search committee or anyone making a decision. So uh, a confidential connection to um, another person of color on campus who can talk to their experience. Now that, in, in a way that's not um, sort of stereotyping them into like a, like a, like what the, that, like that their experience is the only experience that a person of color could have, but really just talking generally about about what they might expect, um, how far they might have to drive to get a, the, hair, uh, the hair products that they, they wanna get and things like that. Um, and it sort of reminds me of a story that I, that I, t I tell in the first chapter around a, a supervisor that I had during the, the search process who basically said, I see social justice a lot on your resume, um, and I just want you to know that we're not very good at, it, at social justice here, um, at least not yet. Um, and uh, I remember sort of having this moment of like, is this person challenging me in this moment, or are they just being honest? Um, and, and I decided to accept it as being honest, and I think I was right in the end. Um, and so I was able to step onto that campus knowing what it is that I was walking into and, and, and already accepting the challenge of, uh, of um, wanting to make it a, a more socially just environment and to advocate for liberatory practices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great, great suggestions about, again, this thing keeps coming up for many of you about, let's just be transparent, transparent with ourselves, let's be transparent about our language, let's be transparent about where we got things together and, and where we're a work in progress and where we haven't even gotten to that yet. I often tell people who are struggling in their current role and they fall in love with a job posting from somewhere and imagine it's everything's perfect there and everybody has a, every place has its challenges every mm -hmm. place has its words you know what the ones at your current institution are but if you think that the next job is going to be this place without any challenges or difficulties that's just unrealistic make sure you know what they are and know what your deal breakers are like these challenges and difficulties are I, undesirable i can navigate that these i i just personally i can't deal with that and so what are your deal breakers how do you know that and ask the question so you can navigate that we've got just a few minutes before we need to wrap up i'd love to just a quick round of just one or two real great nuggets of wisdom that you want to offer or maybe you've gotten from this process of of, of working on this project over five years so i <laughs> i am thinking about um the the those moments in my early career as a graduate student and as a, a brand new professional to the field full time where i feel like i get our version of the conversation uh from our from our mentors uh where it's uh, about you know 
find the find the job that's best fit for you. I feel like it's a very common conversation that happens between mentors in very well-meaning ways to to help um, guide our new professionals. And so I guess my, my message is for folks who are in those, that position where you are providing coaching and guidance and, um, you know, transferring knowledge to the next generation of professionals is to is to really interrogate the the, the spirit of job fit in itself and you know when when you're providing that advice to to the next generation of professionals be, be more clear and explicit about what you mean when when you use fit because it, it's going to get integrated in uh internalized and, and interpreted in a certain way and i think that's one opportunity for us to potentially interrupt uh some of the cyclical uh, conceptions of job fit that um, have led us to where we are today. Thank you. Um, so I think I can, I can, I can share. I'm just, I'm also like just feeling really thankful for this conversation today. I mean, as Brian kind of like talked about our origin story, if you will, and how I joined the team, I'm just reminded of like, how long we worked, but how amazing those conversations were like every single Sunday morning, early afternoon, as we were really growing this um, from the ground up. And I think that is my first takeaway. Um, so as Brian said, I joined the team as an intern through the Commission for Social Justice Educators. I wasn't originally a part of the editorial team. It's just something that kind of happened naturally. Um, so to younger like professionals that might be listening today, I would say, don't like say yes to any opportunity that you feel excited about. I was so excited about the work that these three were doing, like in conjunction with the folks that they were having those original conversations with. And I was lucky enough to have the ability and the time outside of my full-time job to just kind of dive into it. Um, and it led to getting to be able to work with some of the most brilliant like scholars I mean, I'm a little bit biased because I was like a part of this project, but we worked with brilliant authors. I mean, I never would have had that opportunity if I just hadn't kind of taken a chance and thrown my name into the hat to be a part of the intern. So say yes to those opportunities that are exciting to you because who knows what they could lead to. Um, and then the other thing that I would say, I know we've mentioned it time and time and time again, but um, keep reflecting, right? Like keep reflecting on what you are even able to identify in, as your individual biases, but also like ask folks for feedback on it. I mean, I've shared this book with friends of mine that aren't even in the field of higher education and they're taking something away from it. And it's allowed us to have these really lovely conversations about all of our hidden baggage that we're carrying with us that are causing us to cast judgments on others inside and outside of the workplace. And I just think it's so important to keep finding really unique um, and refreshing ways to have the conversations where we reflect on our biases. Thank you. Brian and Elliot, any quick last minute words of wisdom? Um, I would humbled by the representation of authors as far as like some folks were still graduate students when we started this process some are senior professionals that have like name recognition and it's i want everyone to know that they are a scholar and that you don't have to have a certain level of degree uh, or years of experience to have something vital vitally important that can disrupt the norms um and i really feel like the author did that. Um, so you have something important to say, uh, so say it. And, and, you know, at least I want to hear. I think we, we want to hear that too. Thanks, Elliot. Hmm. I, I, I think the only thing that I have to add, because those are really great sort of uh, ways to, to finish up this conversation, is um, just sort of the, the feeling that I've, I've had uh, in the five years of working on this with, with this really amazing group of people um, and the, the fantastic authors who just worked so hard um, and taught me so much is that uh, you're, you're not doing it alone. Um, we're all experiencing what it's like to not fit um, in, in, in our own ways uh, and that we, we need to talk about that. And that by, and again, it's a, I think it's a power of language. I think by talking about it with each other, we, we both give ourselves power and we take away the power um, of, of, of the systems and structures that seek to, to keep us down and keep us behind um, the curtain. So you're not alone. Uh, and I hope that 
that people will read this book and take away some some really amazing um, stories that that help them feel connected. Well, thanks all of you so much. It's also really gratifying for me personally as, as someone who was part of the group who helped work to create the Commission for Social Justice Educators about 15 years ago or maybe more to see what has come from that group and that entity. And this is just one of the wonderful gems that has emerged from, from great people coming together uh, and doing great thinking. So that is, that is a treat to see. I am grateful for all of you for your time as panelists today. Um, thank you so much for your wisdom, your insight, and sharing the brilliance of the authors. And thanks to the great work of our producers uh, and Brian behind the scenes. You can receive reminders about this and other episodes by subscribing to the Higher Ed Live newsletter or browse our archives at higheredlive.com. Join us for my next episode, which will be July 10th, for a rescheduled conversation with Dan Tillapa and Brian McGowan on men and masculinities. And on July 24th, for a discussion on leading with a racial and social justice lens for su senior student affairs officers with Jacob Diaz, Robin Holmes Sullivan, Patty Perillo, Jamie Washington, and Kent Porterfield. Again, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Thanks again to our fabulous guests today and to everyone who is watching. Please make it a great week. Thank you all. <laughs>